Saturday. It's February 4th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in Rome. And we are two of your editors here at Airmail, bringing you a lot to talk and think about on this beautiful Saturday morning. Michael, first of all, why are you in Rome? I'm here at the American Academy in Rome for the next month as a visiting artist. So that's why I'm here. But I think why all our guests are here is because we have a must-listen show for you today, beginning with a story about the actor Army Hammer. His fall from grace two years ago at the height of the Me Too movement was among the most sensational in recent Hollywood history. Accusations of violence, rape, and most shocking of all, cannibalism triggered outrage, ridicule, and a criminal investigation against him. He also had his career destroyed, but now he has decided to tell his side of the story to airmail writer James Kerchick. And Kerchick will join us to take us inside his reporting. He'll tell us how the perceived facts of the story, fueled by the media, collide with Hammer's side of the story. And he'll show how so few of the accusations against Hammer were examined seriously by the media. Then, Airmail co-editor Alessandra Stanley will join the conversation as well. It's a story you don't want to miss. Then, on an entirely different note, one of our favorite artists and men on the scene, David Downton, will join us. He's been front row at the fashion shows in Paris, and he'll be sharing his impressions about what's been capturing his eye. Finally, best-selling author Ellen Hildebrand will be here. If you know her work, chances are you love her. She specializes in what some people call beach reads, and her books have sold more than 20 million copies worldwide. And she'll join us to answer some of life's most pressing questions. So we've got a terrific show. Ashley, where should we begin? First, we're going to start with Ellen Hildebrand. She is, in short, a marvel. She has published 30 books, 29 novels, and one collection of short stories. And she has turned Nantucket into the hottest tourist destination in the U.S. for a certain subset of readers. That's right. The Hilder Babes, as they're called, descend upon this island once a year to drink wine, practice yoga, and of course, talk books. And we are so happy to have Ellen here. She has provided us with endless hours of entertainment through her incredible romance novels. And she's going to tell us all about how she feels about the term beach read and so much more. Welcome live from Nantucket, Ellen Hilderbrand. Okay, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We devoured the wonderful story in the New York Times about the Hilder Babes descending on Nantucket. Tell us about this fabulous retreat that you host every year and what makes it so much fun. So I just finished hosting my 10th Ellen Hildebrand weekend on Nantucket. It started back in 2000, in, in the fall of 2014, the owners of the Nantucket Hotel came to me and they were looking to sort of up their occupancy in the winter. And they said, would you be interested in hosting sort of a fan reader weekend at the hotel in January? And I said, I'm happy to do that. No one will come. No one will come. I said, we'll get 40 people maybe, but whatever. So we put it out and we had a full house sold out in four days and 125 women from across the country came. So we decided to do it the following year. And every year since we've sort of added more things. So now when they cut ladies come, we do yoga and they still do the bus tours. Town, downtown does a sip and shop and all the stores have wine and they put everything on sale. And we go to the chicken box, which is like the dive bar and we go dancing and we have theme dinners and we have cooking classes that have recipes pulled from the book. So it's this whole sort of extravaganza. So the New York Times came and covered it this past month. Your books are so incredibly popular. They're so well read. You have such an incredible fan base all over the world. What is your life like now as one of America's foremost literary celebrities? 
Do people recognize you on the street? Are the Hilder babes coming up to you all over the place? What's it like? I would say in summertime, it is getting increasingly challenging for me to go anywhere. I still go because part of my life is that I live on Nantucket and I do all the fun summer things. I live what I write, basically. So I go to the parties and I go out to dinner with my friends and I go to the beach. I take my kids you know, around. And so people see me everywhere. I've also tried to set up these signings at the local bookstore every Wednesday at 11 throughout the summer so that if you're coming for a week or if you're a day tripper, you will see me because I'm always out in front of the bookstore from 11 to 12 and on Wednesdays. And we have a very long line. It's 100 150 people every week. And we started it in the summer of 21. And I just wasn't sure how it was going to go. And in 21, it was popular. But this past year, it was just crazy town. So Ellen, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working now? Any other projects you have coming up in the near future? Yes. So I have a novel coming out June 13th called The Five Star Weekend. I'm very happy to say that it just received a starred review from Kirkus, which is difficult to get. So I was thrilled. Thank you, Kirkus. And The Five Star Weekend is about a woman named Hollis Shaw, who has a popular food blog, millions of followers, and her husband dies in a car crash and she's devastated and completely at a loss. And in her mourning, she decides that one of the ways that she'll make her feel better is that when she goes to Nantucket for the summer, as she normally does, she will host a weekend for her four best friends, one from each part of her life. So there's her best friend from growing up and Hollis happened to have grown up on Nantucket. There's her best friend from college. There's her best friend from raising her children. And then there's her best friend from midlife who ends up being a woman whom she's met through the blog, but who she has not met in person. And so that person shows up on Nantucket and no one knows who she is. And so it's a very high-end, glamorous weekend, but it brings all of the drama. All right, we can't wait. We know what we're going to be doing in June. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to see you on Nantucket very soon. We're going to be the ones taking your picture in line. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, bye. Bye. Okay, Michael, I love her. The next time you see me, I'm going to be wearing bejeweled flip-flops, drinking wine out of a goblet, and reading my beach reads with abandon. Now that we've done books, I want to go to your special part of the world, close to your heart. How about fashion? Never a bad idea. The couture shows took place in Paris last week, and one of our airmail editors at large, the one and only David Downton, attended and not only did some incredible artwork culled from the runways, which is to say his own interpretations of the looks, but he also wrote about his impressions. We are very happy to have David Downton here. He's an incredible artist and illustrator. He's authored many books. He knows every grand dame who's alive on this planet, and they all love him just as much as we do. Welcome, David. All right. So David, you were just in Paris for Couture. Was this your first time since COVID that you were back in Paris for the shows? Absolutely. Yes. I first went in 1996 on an art director's whim, really. I was not, it wasn't my ambition to be a fashion illustrator, a fashion artist. It just happened. And then I went every summer and winter until 2020, which was 49 couture seasons. And I was really annoyed with the COVID pandemic because it stopped me from getting my 50 couture, unbroken couture seasons. So yes, this was my first time and it was actually my 50th time at BAT. 
And when I thought of that, I thought, actually, that's a hundred euro stars. That's a lot of euro stars. I hope they gave you an extra glass of champagne. I know. <laughs> that should be my autobiography. I hope like Chanel or someone at least brought a cake out for you. You'd think, wouldn't you? <laughs> you would think. David, I used to cover couture as well, and I have to confess, it was by far my favorite fashion moment of the year. It's so few shows compared to the regular collections, and they're so special. Can you tell us what you find so alluring about this particular art form? I think everything about it not only the shows but the attendance circus this sort of magic lantern world of couture because it is a rarefied world it's a world apart obviously given the <laughs> the prices of everything the costs of everything but more than that is creativity unleashed and i always feel that when designers were fledgling designers and were imagining what life would be like as a fashion designer, they imagined couture. In other words, they drew something, they had the budget, they dreamt in technicolor, and they had the workrooms, the extraordinary skills of the workrooms to translate that. Okay, David, first I have to ask the basic question, where do you stay in Paris? What is your hotel of the moment? <laughs> My hotel of the last 10 years or perhaps 15 years is Hotel Cost. I went on the opening night to Hotel Cost 25 years ago. I wasn't asked, but my friends who were living in Paris were, and I tagged along with them, and it was like entering Narnia. I had not really been exposed to the fashion world at that point very much. I had a table with Fergie, the Duchess of York, Carol Bouquet, the actress, Malcolm McLaren, and Castelbejac. All right, David, let's move on to something safer. Virginie Viard Chanel. Obviously, Karl Lagerfeld's shoes are rather large to fill, but Virginie Viard, who's the house's new artistic director, has had quite a lot of success. What did you make of her show? Listen, in all this time, I have learned not to say much about clothes. Because my training was not in fashion, I trained in graphic design and illustration. And as I say, I was parachuted into fashion. And more or less the first time out... I remember saying to someone, oh, love the red one or something. And they all looked at me like I'd shot their pet dog, like the red one was the worst. And I learned to keep quiet. That said, what I thought was how young it looked, how fresh it looked, how they swung onto that runway, which was had these extraordinary, well, much larger than life animal sculptures. They kind of had to navigate and swerve around these animal sculptures. Looking back, Chanel in the 60s, young women wearing Chanel in the 60s. If you think of Romy Schneider, who I love, in Boccaccio 70, she was a young woman, but she's dressed and looks middle-aged in Chanel. Today, Chanel is a brand. It's more than a brand. It's an idea. It's a dream. But it's very much been adopted by youth. That was my reaction to it. Okay, David, in addition to your beautiful words, we also have your incredible works of art in the issue of Ariel this week. You have interpreted several of the looks that you saw in the collections. What's your process like for that? Are you making sketches from your front row seat? Are you going back to the cost and working primarily there? Yes, it's a nightmare. No, I, again, experience has taught me to really not draw during the show. I do make notes during the show, but to be honest, you miss too much. You spend too much time looking down. I learned this early on. My very first show was Versace, Couture, Linda, Naomi, Kate, and they all came out en masse. And by the time they'd left, I'd drawn Kate's arm. 
and I, a very good drawing of her, her arm, I have to say, but nothing of the dress. Over the course of your 25 years of couture going, you've seen a lot. You've seen a, a lot of things you'll never forget. But what strikes you as the most memorable? If you could only talk about one, what would it be? If I could talk about one designer, it would be Christian Lacroix, who just made magic. If I could talk about one show, it would be John Galliano for Dior, the Marchesa Cassati collection in the Paris Opera. I don't think anyone who's seen that will ever forget it. For one thing, we were in the Paris Opera House at 11 in the morning. There was a tango orchestra. There were Maharajas in diamonds serving champagne and whatever they were, and la durée macaroons. This was all before it started. And being a Galliano show, I think we waited an hour. Everyone was smashed by the time it started. And then when it started with a thunderclap and Suzanne von Eichinger in a vast black bell dress ran up four sets of marble stairs in a black mask. It was like Cinderella in reverse. She ran up the stairs as the tango orchestra played and she ran down the gallery, which is modeled on Versailles. And we were all sitting at little tables with our champagne glasses. And as she ran through the gallery, this bell of a dress swung left and right and knocked the glasses off the tables. And they all smashed and the tango orchestra played. And this was the first look. And from there, it went on. Well, David, thank you so much for sharing not only your wonderful memories, but also your incredible art and words with us. Thank you so much. All right, let's get together soon. If not at the cost, at least at Claridge's for a cocktail with a few more. Okay. Thank you, David. Fabulous, David. Thank you so much. But enough with the books and enough with the fashion. We have to get to the real meat of the issue of Airmail this week. This is an incredible feat of reporting. And it's a question that many of us have been asking for a few years now. Is Army Hammer a criminal or was he simply kink shamed? And James Kerjik is here to weigh in on that. He spent quite a long time reporting out this story. He's the first reporter that Army has spoken to about his downfall. And we're so happy to have him here. James Kerjik is a writer at large for Airmail. And he's also the author of Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, which came out last year and is also a must read. Welcome, Jamie. I tip my hat to you. This is an extraordinary feat of reporting, woven an incredible tale that really, I think Michael and I just fell right into. And we have a lot of questions for you. But first and foremost, were you the first reporter to speak with Army Hammer in the wake of his scandal? Thanks so much, Ashley and Michael. And yes, this is the first time that Army Hammer has spoken out about the allegations, other than an initial statement that he released when the allegations about him emerged in January 2021, he put out a statement through his legal team. But he hasn't spoken to any journalists on the record about this until now. And how did you make contact with him and why did he agree to speak with you? He approached me through an intermediary. And I think the concern was that this investigation has been dragging on now for two years. And there doesn't seem to be much of an end in sight. It's in the hands now of the Los Angeles County District Attorney, and he's lost everything career-wise. He has no career. His reputation has taken a total plunge. He's become the butt of jokes around the world. And I just think he wanted to say his piece. Jamie, I just want to just set the stage for a minute because as you note in your story, I mean, a little more than two years ago, he was on top of the world, had parts lined up in the offer, number of other films. He's riding high. And here we are two years later, he seems to have as you say, lost everything. How did we get here? 
take us through briefly how we got here. And then I'd love to know about what you see as the the holes in the accusations against him. Sure. Well, in early January, an anonymous account by a woman named Effie started posting a series of private internet conversations that had been carried out on Facebook and Instagram between her and Army Hammer, in which he was expressing sexual fantasies relating to cannibalism, BDSM, and whatnot. And then over the ensuing couple of weeks, a number of other women came out publicly who had dated him or had some sort of relationship with him in the past, accusing him of different types of sexual and emotional abuse. And over the course of several weeks, he lost all these parts that he was slated to play. And you mentioned the offer. He was also supposed to star in Shotgun Wedding, the movie that just came out with Jennifer Lopez. He had a Broadway play on his slate. He had a movie with Mads Mikkelsen, Billion Dollar Spy, a number of important projects. And then I should say, and then in March, the woman known as Effie, she then hired Gloria Allred and she gave a live stream press conference over the internet in which she alleged that Hammer had raped her. And so that was the most serious accusation. The story had shifted now from sort of unusual, say, sexual fetishes and perhaps a love for BDSM and whatnot, and it now escalated to rape. And she she said that he had raped her for nearly five hours in 2017 and had beaten her repeatedly, thrown her against the room, banged her head against the wall. His talent agency dropped him and his career was over. And the verdict really had formed on him. And so when I was approached to do this last fall, it had been something like 18 months. There had been no legal adjudication of these claims. He denied everything. He said that everything he engaged in was consensual between him and these women. And so I decided, you know what? There's another side of this story that needs to be told. I didn't come into this with any preconceived notions. I'd seen Hammer in a couple of films, enjoyed his work as an actor. I wasn't a fan in the way that some of his more devoted supporters might be on the internet. But as I began to explore this and speaking to him, looking through the evidence, I began to see a lot of holes in this story. I mean, for one, the fact that Effie has not signed an affidavit. And this was the reason, or this is reportedly the reason why Gloria Allred dropped her as a client. I mean, that to me was a sign that something was off here. Gloria Allred is not someone who's particularly known for shying away from highly publicized, controversial cases. So for her to drop this woman Effie as a client was a sign to me that there was probably something going on here. And the fact that Effie would not bring her claims to a court of law, which is the system that we have for adjudicating crimes in this country, to me signaled that there was something off about this. Now, Jamie, just for the sake of clarity, was Effie's rape allegation the only rape allegation against Hammer or were there others? There's only one rape allegation, a woman named Courtney Vusakovich, who he dated for about two months. She accused him of pressuring her into kind of BDSM situations that she later regretted. But again, she wasn't accusing him of criminal activity. And another woman named Paige Lawrence, an Instagram influencer, she alleged that Hammer carved his initial with a knife in her groin near her nether regions about an inch deep. That was also a very serious allegation. But in speaking to Hammer, he said, I mean, first of all, it was not an inch deep. To carve something an inch deep in someone would have sent them to the emergency room. And Paige didn't say that. She said she needed to cover it up with the Band-Aid. Also, he claimed it was consensual. It was just a scrape. But again, the issue of consent here is key. 
And I should add that obviously consent is a very tricky, complicated issue. And it's particularly more so, I think, when you're dealing with a rich and famous person who is in a sexual relationship, even if it's consensual with someone who's younger and not rich and famous. There's obviously a power dynamic there. And to say here that Hammer is not, well, he's denying that he engaged in anything that was forced or non-consensual. He is taking responsibility for what he now acknowledges were perhaps a power imbalance in these relationships and that he was maybe callous with these women, right? That he would kind of sweep them up in very kind of torrid, heavy, hot and heavy romance that would last for two months. And then he would move on to the next young woman. So he can look back on that and he can acknowledge that he, to use his own words, he was an asshole. He was not particularly maybe sensitive to these women in terms of the relationship that he had with them. But he really draws a line when it comes to the accusation that anything he did was forced, that anything was violent. That, I think, is the main point here. This leads us to an important element of Effie's accusations that prove very damning for Hammer. The idea of the CNC or the consensual non-consent scene. Can you tell us a little bit about A, what that is, and B, how Hammer allegedly engaged in one of those? Right. So BDSM obviously involves fantasies of domination, right? You have a dom dominant partner and a sub, the submissive one. And so consensual non-consent scene is what it's called. And the word scene is important, right? Because this is pretend. When you're engaging in BDSM, you're not actually committing violence against someone's will. It might involve tying someone up, using ropes, using force, but it's consensual, right? And you have things like safe words that you use if, say, the pain is becoming too great and you want to end the scene. And so Hammer, I should say, he had had a interest in this world of sexual fantasy. And I should add here, this is another revelation that is new in the piece. And he says that this interest stems from the sexual abuse that he suffered as a young boy. When he was 13 years old, he was sexually abused by a youth pastor. And through therapy that he's since undergone, he connects that, those very traumatic experiences of not being in control of his sexuality, being abused by an older person that led him to want to have control in sexual situations. And so he draws a connection between the abuse he suffered as a young boy to his later adult interest in BDSM. But, you know, he married young. He married his wife, Elizabeth Chambers, when he was 20, I believe. So he never really got the opportunity to explore BDSM. The Elizabeth Chambers element is an important part to consider, right? Because during the time that much of this behavior that we're talking about now was happening, he was married, having children, living a relatively traditional life in Los Angeles. So how are those two elements of his life and lifestyle interacting at this point? Absolutely. So yeah, he had been having troubles in his marriage for quite a long time. And again, you wouldn't know this looking at their public life as advertised on Instagram or in the media. I mean, they were the really model picture of a happy family. And even when they separated in the summer of 2020, this was before the, about six months before these accusations came out, they announced it together on Instagram. And it seemed like it was a very amicable separation at the time. What we now know, obviously, is that there was a lot of trouble brewing in this relationship. And so Effie had made contact with him initially in October of 2016. They didn't meet until October 2017. And according to him, this was the first time that he had ever engaged in a CNC, in a consensual non-consent scene. What did that involve? It involved a real sort of meticulous planning. So they would arrange a certain Starbucks where he would see her and then follow her to her home. She would leave the door open. He would come in. And it was sort of simulating an act of sexual violence, right? And that's where the thrill 
comes from. And so according to him, Effie was the woman who introduced him to this. And by the way, they had sex many times, but it was this one event, this one CNC in April 2017 that she would later accuse or later insist of being an act of rape. And so his relationship with Effie went on for about a couple of months, but then when she realized that he wasn't going to leave his wife for her, that's when things began to head south. I mean, he ended the relationship at that point. He felt very guilty about it. And then according to him, this is when her behavior became somewhat obsessive, really. And she began following him around the world to the premiere of Call Me By Your Name. She found out that he was shooting a movie in the south of France, and she showed up in Nice. And in 2019, he opened up to his wife, Elizabeth Chambers, about this. And she was obviously very angry about it. And they went into couples therapy. It reached the point where the marriage couldn't survive. It couldn't go on. But it's important to note here that in the fall of 2020, so a couple of months before Effie went public with her accusations, she was in touch with Elizabeth. And we know now because conversations between the two of them on Instagram were since made public. And they reveal that Elizabeth was coordinating with Effie in the months leading up to her coming out with these accusations. So Jamie, you have Hammer stating in your story. Also, I mean, he's a master of compartmentalization here. He's not only carrying on an affair, but he's, as he admits, abusing drugs, abusing alcohol. He then says in your story, even looking back over the past two plus years, he wouldn't undo any of it, any of what's happened to him because he feels it's gotten him the sort of reset that he needed to have, right? Yeah, I mean, it was incredible interviewing him for someone who was seemingly at the top of the world, right? Very wealthy, handsome, international movie star with a beautiful wife and family. But he was deeply unhappy and he was abusing drugs. According to him, he was high every day. He was drinking. He was leading an out-of-control lifestyle. And he told me that he wouldn't give back anything to go back to that kind of lifestyle. All the embarrassment, the loss of his career, because to him, it was really a lie. I mean, he really wasn't enjoying it. He was deeply unhappy. And he's been in recovery for about two years now, really since the scandal broke. Jamie, one detail of your reporting notes that Hammer underwent a psycholegal evaluation that generated a 142-page report. And in the end, a court endorsed Hammer's bid for partial custody of his children. And it's details like this that raise the question, what do we do with people like Hammer, whose misdeeds fall short of criminality, but there were people who were hurt? And yet, what is justice and what do we do with them? And how and when do we let them or do we let them back into the culture? Yeah, it's a really difficult question, right? Because we have a legal system for adjudicating criminal allegations. But we don't for the behavior that falls short of that. And I think it's a case-by-case -case basis, right? There are people who engage in, say, workplace activity that might not be illegal, but that is really unprofessional and abusive. And there should be punishment for that, right? They Maybe they should lose their job. Maybe they should lose opportunities. Maybe they should be exiled from certain professions if they've, if they've abused that power. But there are other cases where I think it's a more of a gray area. And I can only say personally, in this story that I've reported, I think that the punishment has been, does not fit the crime, so to speak here, right? I mean, by Hammer's own admission, he committed wrongdoing. I mean, he, he did things that he regrets. He treated women poorly in these relationships. But I personally don't think that the behavior that he's acknowledged should be punished by a complete cancellation. It's a case-by-case -case basis, and it's up to all of us to decide 
how we respond to these cases. I think the problem in this particular story is that a verdict was decided upon, that this person was tried, convicted, and sentenced in the court of public opinion. And seemingly everyone has gone along with it. I mean, really no one in the media has questioned these accusations. I mean, I came across a story a couple of weeks ago where he, which said that he stands accused of possible cannibalism. I mean, that's just preposterous. The whole cannibalism thing stems from him expressing sexual fantasies about eating people, which by the way, as we show in the piece, the text conversations in which these remarks were made were highly selective and edited. And if you actually look at the dialogue between him and one of the women that we show, it's a back and forth exchange and the two of them are going at it. And I should also just say, would any of us want our pillow talk or our sexual talk with people whom we are in sexual relationships with, would we want those private conversations, those deeply intimate private conversations to be publicized, to be taken out of context and then to be publicized? I mean, there but for the grace of God go I. I would not want that. And I don't think it's fair to judge people for their sexual fetishes. As long as this is between consenting adults and there's no harm involved, it's really not for us as a society to judge what gets people off, frankly, right? As long as you're not harming someone, as long as there's no children involved, right? As long as it's not criminal activity. I have a real problem. I think it's true to say that this was kink shaming. And Jamie, you're one of the few people who have seen him and had a meaningful conversation with him about these matters and then gone on to tell the tale publicly. So tell us, how did he seem when you spoke with him? How's his mental state? Do you see any chance of a comeback for him? Well, he seemed remarkably at peace with himself. He has a very good relationship with his children. I mean, I can't imagine having gone through that and being so at ease, but he is. He's he's remarkably kind of calm and collected. As far as the comeback goes, I can't speak to that. I think that's up to the studio gods. But one person who did go on the record in support of him with me in an interview with me was Howard Rosenman, who's the executive producer of Call Me By Your Name, which was the great sort of 2017 film with Timothy Chalamet that Hammer starred in. And he says that Army was a wonderful person to work with. And he thinks that the allegations are, to use his word, he said the allegations were bullshit. And he thinks that he deserves a second chance. So whether that happens, it's unclear. And Hammer said that he'd like to work again. He'd love to work again. But if not, that's fine, that he can find a new line of work. Well, Jamie, thank you so much. This is, again, incredible feat of reporting. So thank you so much for bringing that to Airmail. Well, thank you so much for having me. Okay, Michael. Well, we have heard from Jamie. Now we're going to hear from Alessandra Stanley, our illustrious co-editor of Airmail, who has had a long and storied career in journalism. And she's going to share with us some of the thinking behind our decision to publish this and, and what makes this such a compelling story. So welcome, Alessandra. Hello. I think like a lot of people, my first reaction was, who cares about Army Hammer? I mean, these charges are so awful and he's this rich actor. And Jamie made a pretty good case about basically saying with so many terrible accusations, what were the consequences? I mean, yes, his career was ruined, but how come there weren't lawsuits? How come there weren't court cases? How come there weren't private settlements? How come lawyers didn't? There were just so many unanswered questions that it seemed you're right. This is worth looking at. The story just seemed unfinished. It had all stayed at one level. And it will be a test, I think, of sort of the zeitgeist now and social media, because you wonder, are people going to just blackball any story that is about Army Hammer that doesn't follow the narrative we've known this far? If you actually have a story that sort of 
offers to at least consider another aspect of the story or his side of the story, will it be shut down? Because people will read a social media headline and just say no. So for two reasons, I think it's a pretty interesting story. So I hope people read it. After you've read Jamie's reporting, did your view on Army Hammer change? Do you feel that he got what he deserved? It wasn't so much that it changed my view of him, because at the beginning, I just didn't believe all these stories. They just seemed, a lot of it just seemed like hyperbole. But I was just surprised by how flimsy some of the accusations were against him. Does he deserve to have his career destroyed? People's careers get destroyed in a car accident. I mean, there's so many ways you can destroy a career. I wasn't really concerned that much about him, but I was concerned about sort of the legal ramifications around him. And can you share a little bit behind the thinking of your decision to publish the full context of the text message exchanges that Army had had with some of these women who went on to accuse him of various things? I wasn't sure we should, actually, because they're really just vile. But Ash Carter, made a very, the editor of the piece, made a very compelling case for people should know. They've only seen one half of this dialogue, which is Army Hammer's sort of speech, but they never really saw what he was responding to or provoking or being provoked by. And until you read those, it just gives you a much fuller picture of what these seductions were like. And it's not a very pretty picture. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your view of this story. It's really helpful to have all of this context as we go about taking a new look at Army Hammer, a story we thought we knew. Provocative, Michael? I think we know what Twitter is going to be talking about this weekend. Yeah, wow. What's amazing about this story is how few of the facts, as we said, have been looked at closely, not just by the media, but by law enforcement. And I would dare predict that this story is going to throw off quite a bit of heat and we'll be seeing some follow-up on it, I'm sure, in the days and weeks to come. I'm just going to switch gears right away and say... Usually you get to ask the question first, but today I'm just going to switch it around a little bit. The weekend's coming, Ashley, and we could all use a bit of escapism. So is there anything you can recommend this weekend? I wish that I could say that this is light and happy fare compared to the Army Hammer conversation we've just had. But alas, it's not. Completely addicted to this television show. It originally aired on the BBC. It's called Happy Valley. And the first season came out in 2014, and the third season is airing right now. You can see it on Amazon Prime Video, on Apple TV, and you can also get it on AMC Plus, as well as the BBC One Player, so many different options. But Happy Valley follows the adventures and misadventures of a small-town police sergeant in Yorkshire as she's contending with not only a drug-infested and crime-riddled community, but also a fair amount of upheaval in her personal life. She is raising her grandson. She has a confusing ex-husband, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a highly addictive show. And I have to confess, I hadn't seen it until really recently, and I can't even take credit for it because friends of Airmail, Rachel Johnson, and the Guardian columnist Marina Hyde were talking about it with me and telling me how good it was and that I had to go home and watch it immediately, which I did, which is why we are recording this podcast so late this week. I am sorry. But no, it's a fantastic show. Happy Valley. There are three seasons right now available to see on Apple TV, Amazon Prime Video, the BBC One Player, or AMC+. Michael, what do you have for us? Have you seen Shrinking with Jason Siegel and Harrison Ford on Apple TV? No, but it's on my list to watch on my VPN. Okay, I have to say the first episode, give it time because it's a little bit slow, which often happens in a series when they're 
kind of arranging the furniture to get everyone settled in. But this show, as you many know, it's from Ted Lasso's creators. It's Seagull plays a shrink whose wife has died and he's struggling to come out of that funk. And Ford plays his fellow, one of his fellow therapists. In a lot of ways for me, I think Ford steals the show. You get to see him playing humor, which it occurred to me, I rarely see him do. The last time that came to mind was maybe when he played in that remake of Sabrina he did about 25 years ago. But equally good is Jessica Williams, who plays the third therapist in practice. As I said, it's a bit slow to start, but once it does, it grabs you. And most of all, it, for me, kind of fills that void where I've been counting the days this winter till the return of Ted Lasso. So it's shrinking and it's on Apple TV. So check it out. Fabulous. All right. Well, thank you so much. We wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you for joining us. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.